Well, we continue this morning into the review of Matthew. We jump back to Matthew. We jumped out last week because we were in Luke 24. We were in Luke 24, and we saw there the resurrection, certainty concerning uh, the resurrection. But let's remember where we were in Matthew. Remember, Matthew is built up around these five discourses, these five main teaching sections where Jesus takes a take some time to expound uh, what it means to follow him, what it means to be a disciple in a variety of senses. So chapters 1 through 4 were storyline, they were narrative that were led up to, uh, the, uh, led up to uh, the Sermon on the Mount, the first main discourse. So chapters 1 through 4, they displayed the identity of Jesus as being king, and then chapters 5 through 7 were all about kingdom righteousness. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? What does kingdom righteousness look like? What does following the king look like? And Jesus also demonstrated his authority through his teaching. And then chapters 8 through 9, he demonstrated his authority through miracles, giving foretastes of the kingdom, giving foretastes of the kingdom. And he demonstrated his authority again. He demonstrated that he is the son of God. Not only that one king that is going to rule over, the human king that's going to rule over all the world, but also God the son. Also God the son. God incarnate. And that led up to chapter 10, that second main discourse where Jesus told his disciples, told his apostles, as they're reaching Israel... And proclaiming that same message that John preached, that Jesus preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. That's the message. That's Jesus' message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Turn your allegiance from sin and self and trust yourself to me as king and follow me as disciples. And then in chapter 11, we jump back into the narrative. We jump back into the storyline. And so, But Jesus is still speaking quite a bit because What we find in chapters 11 through 12, and we've been saying this, it's a turning point in the Gospel of Matthew. We've seen opposition to Jesus. We've seen opposition to Jesus up to this point. But now we see uh, the fateful day, the fateful time where that opposition is going to come to ahead. And so even in chapter 11, it starts in chapter, uh, verses 2 through 6 with John the Baptist. He's sitting in prison. So here's the herald of the king sitting in prison, and he's wondering, are you the Messiah? And Jesus points him to what? The things he's doing, the deeds of the Messiah that show that he is indeed the Messiah. And then he switches and talking to the crowds. Remember the crowds, they're kind of neutral. They're, they're not disciples yet, but nor are they the scribes and Pharisees. They're kind of in the middle. They're interested Uh, but they're not committed yet. And Jesus talks to the crowds about John. Why? Because if they repent, if they entrust themselves to him, if they receive the message and the messengers, then John will be that Elijah character, preparing the way for the day of the Lord, preparing the coming of the kingdom. And so he's trying to get the crowds to think about who's John, because if you understand who John is, you understand the cusp of history that you're appoint the the cusp of history that you're at, and then Jesus goes on, even still speaking to the crowds, to describe his generation. The question is, will the generation repent? Will na- the nation of Israel repent? And what jo- uh, what Jesus says is, this generation's like silly, capricious children in a marketplace. They want everyone to listen to their tune and drop what they're doing, but wisdom doesn't do that. John didn't do that. Jesus doesn't do that. And so there's a big question mark. Is the generation going to receive? And then it looks bleak in verses 20 through 24. That's why I had Steve recap that because it leads into today. But 20 through 24, you remember the places where Jesus did the majority of his works in Galilee, Bethsaida, Chorazin, Capernaum. They're right nearby each other. They're right in that north, in the Sea of Galilee. And that's where Jesus did the majority of his works. He displayed the powers of the kingdom to show that he's king, and yet he condemns them. He says, you're worse off than Tyre and Sidon. You're worse off than Sodom because you've had clear revelation. You've had clear truth, and yet you're not repenting. And we said that, rep- that lack of repentance doesn't look very loud. It looks pretty quiet. It looks like 
well, uh, that, Jesus is nice. I like his teaching. I, I like his miracles, but, but I'm not going to repent. That is enough to earn you greater condemnation with the level of clarity that Jesus gave. It's greater condemnation than Sodom. And in response to that is what we get today at the end of chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. Verses 25 through 30. And what we find here, again, it's been pretty bleak uh, about the revela- uh, the, 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 that generation that Jesus is talking to, the generation of Jesus and John. It's pretty bleak. And yet we do get some light here today, some encouragement, because the main idea of this section is this. Come to the Son who reveals the Father, who reveals the Son to find rest. Come to the Son who reveals the Father, who reveals the Son to find rest. That is the main idea of this section this morning. So let's look at verses 25 and 26 and see this, that you need to praise the Father who only reveals the Son to infants. Praise the Father who only reveals the Son to infants. Look at verse 25. It says this, at that time, so what does that mean? It means it's framing for us uh, exactly on the heels of what Jesus has been saying, that same basic time frame Jesus says what he's about to say. Uh, there's also, if you will notice, um, well, probably in your translation, you can't see it. It goes right into saying, at that time, Jesus declared or Jesus said. There's actually two words for speaking. If you were to put it literally, it would be, at that time, answering, Jesus said. In most translations, they just say, well, it's kind of redundant, so let's just smush them together. But actually, that word for answering or responding is fairly important. Literally, like I said, you could read it, at that time, answering, Jesus said. Now, what is he answering? Because the very last section, Jesus was speaking. Jesus was speaking, and he was speaking his pronouncement of judgment on those cities. And then Jesus is speaking again in verses 25 through 26. So who is he answering? Well, you will notice that he's changing audiences for a second. The crowds are still there. But in verses 20 through 24, he's been denouncing these cities, but the crowds are still around hearing this. But in verses 25 through 26, he starts addressing the Father. He starts praying. And Jesus is responding to the pronouncement of judgment he just made to his generation. He's responding to that reality, and he's responding to the Father. At that time, after responding, Jesus said... I praise you, Father. This word here for praise, or maybe your translation says thanks, it's, it's actually the word in Matthew 3 where it talks about people going to the Jordan and confessing their sins. It's that same word for confession. So this is a public profession, a public confession, but the idea of praise. This is normally, this word is used this way in the Greek Old Testament, to praise. So Jesus is responding to his condemnation of his generation with praise. Now, that's kind of odd, isn't it? When you think about it, wait a minute. Your generation is not responding to John's message. It's not responding to your message. It's not responding to your apostles' message. And they're condemned. What's the proper response? And Jesus goes right into praise of the Father. Now, why is that? Well, he's going to explain for us why. But he responds by saying, I praise you, Father. And then he describes the Father a little bit more. He says this, Lord of the heaven and the earth. What is that referring to? Well, it's, it's not referring to the heavens, the, 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 the realm of God. It's actually referring uh, to, it's a singular form. It's referring to the heaven as in terms of the created order. You can think about it like that. Heaven and earth encompass all of the created order. All of the created order. God is Lord, he is master over the created order, unquestioned. Not uncontested, but unquestioned. God is Lord of the created order, and that gives Jesus justification for saying what he's about to say. God rules 
over everything. The entire created order. We don't exist except for God saying, yeah, those people can continue to exist. The, the sun doesn't keep shining. The rain doesn't keep falling. The earth doesn't keep sprouting plants that you can eat or sustaining animals that you can eat unless God wills it. God is Lord of the created order. And that gives justification to what Jesus praises God for. Why is Jesus praising the Father in response to the condemnation of these cities? I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you hid these things from the wise and understanding, and you revealed them to infants. Now, what's the these things? Anytime you see like a pronoun or something that refers back to something else, you should ask, well, what's it referring to? What's the these things? You hid these things. Well, in the context of chapter 11 and the rest of the book of Matthew, these things are the things about the kingdom. That's been the whole message, right? The kingdom of heaven has drawn near. It's not here yet, but it's right there. It's pressing itself violently you got John the Baptist, you've got Jesus doing miracles, you've got his apostles doing miracles. The kingdom is pressing itself violently. It's pressing itself violently. And what's being pressed? Well, first, the identity of Jesus as king and the nature of his kingdom, the power of his kingdom, and the call of the kingdom. The call of the kingdom has always been repent. Turn your allegiance from sin and self. Turn from being your own king to submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And what's the promise? The promise has been, all of the backdrop has been, Israel, if you respond, God's going to restore that kingdom under the messianic king. That's who Jesus is. And he's, he's going to re, um, restore the kingdom not only for Israel, but then there's going to be blessings for the whole world. That was the promise for the Old Testament. But just like we saw Jesus' contemporaries, the cities, his, even the, his home territory, so to speak, it's hidden from them. Now, we saw in 20 through 24, they're held responsible. They're not responding. They need to respond. And yet what Jesus is saying here, I'm praising you, Father, because the ultimate reason that those cities didn't respond was, was they're, they're held responsible, but the ultimate reason is, God, you hid it from them. You hid it from the wise and understanding. What's the wise and understanding? What does he mean by that? He means those who have natural, who naturally should get it, who naturally should get it. So you can think of the scribes and Pharisees. There's the people who are well versed in the law, but even the common people, even the people of Israel who knew the law, they're the wise and understanding. They have all these natural benefits. They should understand that this is the Messiah and this is the King, and yet they're not seeing it. They're not seeing it. God hid the things, the things about the kingdom, from the wise and understanding and did what? He revealed them to infants. This word is, it's the idea of small children. So it can refer to infants. It can refer to those a little bit older, but little kids, little children, which is the exact opposite end of the spectrum from the wise and the understanding. Think about it like this. Um, think about like a PhD scientist. That's the wise and understanding, right? And then you think about the other end of the spectrum, a child who knows very little, who has very little resources. God's not revealing it to the PhD. He's revealing it to those who know very little and are dependent, utterly dependent. They have nothing to offer. They are children. This is a reference to the disciples. Uh, Jesus has already called uh, like the least of these, uh, that's, the, that's the disciples. The disciples have seen this. That's why they're disciples. They've repented and they've entrusted themselves to Jesus. They're following him. But the only reason for that is not because of who the disciples are. They're fishermen. They're average Joes. They're not the people that are wise and understanding, at least in the world's eyes. But the only reason that they responded is ultimately because the Father. The Father revealed the things of the kingdom, and we understand that they, fully, they don't fully understand, yet they will. You can see that in Matthew and the Gospels in general. The, the disciples don't get all of it yet, but they will, but it's ultimately due to the Father. 
It's ultimately due to the Father opening their eyes to see the kingdom, to see the Son. That is what is going on. And Jesus continues, he kind of builds on his thought a little bit. In verse 26, he said, yes, Father, so what I just affirmed about you hiding the things from those who have all the natural benefits, you hid those things from them, and then you reveal them to infants. Yes, Father, that's right, that's good. Because why? Why is it good? Why is it good that God operates that way? Because in this way, in this way, what way? The way of the manner and the way of Jesus, uh, of the Father, hiding those things from the wise and understanding and revealing them to the little children. In that way, favor has come before you. Your translation might read the idea of, um, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will, or something like that in the NASB. And it's actually kind of a difficult phrase to unpack. You see, there's this word here, eudokia. You don't need to know that, but it's just the word that's the primary emphasis here. It's the only time it's used here in Matthew. And usually when this word is used in the Bible, it refers to kind of one of two things. Uh, on one level, it refers to God's good pleasure. It always refers to God's good pleasure at some, some sense. And what do we mean by that? God's good pleasure in terms of what he wills, what he desires, what he comes to pass. That's God's good pleasure. Everything God does, he does because it pleases him to do so. But that's God acting. But the other way it's used, and you can even see this and say something like Luke 2.14, is that it's not just God's good pleasure, his favor, but it's also his good pleasure resting on individuals. Another way we would say that is favor or grace. When God wills and decides, but his good pleasure rests on an individual. And in fact, like I said, this is the only time this word is used in Matthew, but the verb version of it, this is a noun form, but the verb version of it is used in Matthew. And every single time the verb version is used, it talks about God's pleasure resting on an individual, namely Jesus himself. Because in the baptism and the transfiguration, it talks about how you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And that's the verb version of this same word. And Jesus is not just saying, yeah, this is God's will. He is saying that. But he's saying, how does God's favor, how does God's good pleasure rest on an individual? Well, he just said, in this manner, it rests on an individual, not hiding it from those who have all the natural advantages and revealing it to those who don't, a reversal, a reversal of human expectations. And in that manner, favor comes before you. There's a preposition here where it's the idea of the person is standing before God. And if you think about the judgment seat kind of language, the judgment in general that has been used throughout the book of Matthew, it's the idea of you're going to stand before God's tribunal. You already do in a sense, but you will at one point in the future. He's just referenced that even in the last section. How are you going to have God's good pleasure, his favor on you? Isn't that the question for all of us? Because we understand we are each and every one of us sinners. We deserve God's wrath because sin is not just a naughty thing. It is each and every sin, the smallest sin, is a personal offense against an infinitely holy and lovely and majestic God who deserves and demands our worship. And the question is, we deserve hell. We deserve God's judgment. How in the world can we have God's good pleasure again? How can we have his favor? And the answer of the scriptures and the answer that Jesus gives here is, you can't do anything. Ultimately, you can do nothing. You see, the person who ultimately determines whether you see the Son, whether you see the things of the kingdom, is God himself. And God gets glory for himself through that. The universe exists to bring God pleasure, to make him happy, to do what he wants to do, to put his full range of character on display. And when God reverses the expectation of people, you're wise in understanding, and so from a human perspective, like, they got the smarts, they can figure it out that this is the kingdom and this is the Messiah. 
And when God says, no, you're not going to get it, but I'm going to reveal it to infants, God is glorified. Because there's no other explanation. There's no explanation for why the disciples would turn to Jesus except for the Father's good pleasure, his sovereign grace in opening people's eyes and showing them the Son. Repentance. Now, remember, what did Jesus just do in verses 20 through 24? He held the cities responsible to repent. Everyone is responsible to repent. It is a command. It is not an idea. It's not a good option. It's a command from the King of kings and the Lord of lords to repent and entrust yourself to Christ. But ultimately, you can't repent unless the Father opens your eyes to do so, to see the Son. Repentance only comes about because of the good pleasure and sovereign grace of the Father. You see, those of us today, here today who have repented, you cannot boast in your repentance. It is a gift of God in spite of who you are. Not because of who you are, in spite of who you are. And what's the proper response to that? Well, what is Jesus doing? Praising the Father. When you understand and you've repented here today, you have nothing to boast in, and so how do you respond? You praise the Father. You praise the Father along with Jesus for granting you that repentance and humble joy and thankfulness. But remember, how is, why is Jesus responding the way he's responding? He's responding to rejection. Think about it like this. Jesus is the ultimate evangelist. You can't get a better evangelist than that. And he's preaching, and he's doing miracles, and he's doing all this stuff, and people are rejecting the message. Well, when someone doesn't repent, even if they have many human advantages, this ultimately is from the hand of God. Though the one refusing to repent is still morally culpable, morally guilty. God is glorified in a different way through this scenario, but still through the display of his sovereignty. God is glorified either way. When you share the gospel clearly and someone does not respond, you mourn over the rejection. Jesus is mourning over the rejection, isn't he? He's mourning over the rejection of those cities in verses 20 through 24. And then on the heels of that, what does he do? Then he rejoices in God. So when you re- the gospel message, you pro- proclaim it faithfully and clearly and someone rejects it, you mourn over that rejection as Jesus does, but you rejoice that God will still be glorified in his sovereignty just as Jesus does. Here's the thing about sharing the gospel or proclaiming the gospel. Your greatest good in an evangelistic, the greatest good in an evangelistic situation is not that person's salvation. Did you hear me say that? The greatest good for an individual in an evangelistic encounter is not that person's salvation. From a human perspective it is, but not from an ultimate perspective. From an ultimate perspective, the greatest good in an evangelistic situation is not ultimately that person's salvation, but God's glory. Because God does what he does for his glory. And God is glorified through repentance and faith and through rejection. Think about it like this. Maybe you're here today and you're saying, maybe you're silently rejecting Christ. You're here, so you're somehow interested or someone brought you here or something. But maybe you're like, I don't want any part of this. Maybe you're silently rejecting Christ. Don't think that you're outside of God's will. Don't think you can give the finger to God. He will be glorified in you, either through his grace to you in your eventual surrender, like he did to me. He will be glorified in you, either through his grace to you in your eventual surrender to Christ, or in his eternal judgment of you for your hard-hearted rebellion. God will be glorified in either way. They are different aspects of his character. One is wrath, one is grace, but God will be glorified, and you can do nothing to stop it. Because God is that big, and God, everything is about God. And so what do you do? What do you say when you recognize, I have nothing? I get it. I have nothing. I can bring nothing to the table. I am nothing. What do I do? I know I can't cause myself. I've struggled with this in the past. How, what if I can't bring myself to repentance? I can't cause it. I understand that from the scriptures. What do you do? You plead for God's grace with empty hands. You bring nothing to the table like an infant. 
not your smarts or your human advantage, whether that's church attendance, Bible reading, obedience, being nice, etc. You bring nothing to the table. And you come and you plead for God's grace, and God loves to answer that prayer. That gives you God's favor. God is gracious to infants, to those who bring nothing to him, and God gets glory through that. So praise the Father who only reveals the Son to infants. Next, we see this in verse 27. Understand that only the Son can reveal the Father. Only the Son can reveal the Father. Look at verse 27. All things were handed over to me by my Father. Now, just pause for a second. He was just talking to the Father. Jesus was just addressing the Father, right? Second person. I, I praise you. I praise you, Father. So he's praying. Yeah, the crowd's still there and they hear it, but he's talking to the Father. But then he switches gears in verse 27. Now he's no longer talking to the Father. Now he's talking to the crowds again, and he's giving them information. He's giving them truth. All things were handed over to me by my Father. Notice the language, were. All things were handed over to me by my Father. What's he talking about? Because even when Jesus says this, he's not seen as the king yet, is he? He's not installed as king in th on the throne in Jerusalem. He's not reigning uh, effect in, in that sense over Israel and then the nations of the world. So what does he mean, all things? Well, yeah, it's the, all things about the kingdom, but here's the reality. God's plan has always been for a human king to sit on the throne of the world. Think of Adam. He's a king and he's a priest. And then Israel was supposed to be a a son of God, that's that terminology of function, that as a son of God, a human son of God, you are to represent God, you are to be a stewardship ruler over the world. Adam was supposed to do that, Noah was supposed to do that, Israel as a nation was supposed to do that, David was supposed to do that, David's line is supposed to do that, and ultimately Jesus is that ultimate son of God in that sense of function, of role as a human to reign over the world. But what we've seen in Matthew is Jesus isn't just a human. He is God himself. He is both. And so Jesus is the ultimate son of God because he is God the son. And the father's intention from all eternity has always been to hand everything over to the son. He loves the son. We're going to get into some Trinitarian dynamics here. And what we believe about the Trinity is there is one God and he exists eternally in three persons and the persons relate to one another. And the Father hands everything over to the Son. He handed everything over to the Son in eternity of past. It's already done. It's just a matter of when is it going to be seen? When is it going to happen in its fullest extent? And Jesus prefaces what he's about to say with that understanding. All things have been handed over to me by the Father. I'm the guy that rules the kingdom. I'm the one that God, the Father has handed everything over to you. And then notice what he says, and no one is knowing the Son except the Father. This idea of knowing, this is relational knowing. This is the idea, I don't just know some facts, but I know someone. There's a difference between knowing facts about someone and knowing someone. If you're married, you understand that. You can know facts about your fiancé, but when you're married, you know them. You know them in amazing ways. Well, that's what Jesus is saying has existed between the persons of the Trinity for all eternity. Perfect relational knowing. Knowing the glory of God perfectly, knowing the intimacy of God perfectly, knowing mutual love perfectly, knowing joy perfectly. That is the kind of knowing that Jesus is talking about here. And uh, the, uh, Jesus is saying, no one knows the Son, I'm the Son, right? No one knows the Son perfectly except the Father. Only the Father perfectly knows who the Son is and all of his character attributes, because only God knows perfectly God. And there's the other side of it. Neither the Father is anyone knowing except the Son. And to whomever the Son 
desires, and this kind of desiring is desire with a plan, desire with an intention. It's not just, oh yeah, I wish that would happen. This is a desire with an intention. To whomever the Son desires to reveal. There's our second use of the word reveal. The Father revealed the Son, verses 25 through 26. What do we see here? The Son reveals the Father. You think about, this is This is amazing. Think about from all eternity past, God has been who he is. He's never changed. And the persons know and love one another eternally. The Father knowing the Son, the Son knowing the Spirit, the Spirit knowing the Father. They all know each other perfectly. And friends, that is the greatest joyful relationship you can have in existence, is to know relationally the persons of the Trinity. To put it bluntly, that is the goal of Christianity, is to know God with that level of intimacy, with that level of love, with that level of joy, that's what we were designed for, and that's what we want. All of our cravings after lesser things, they're ultimately are a poor, poor reflection of what we were designed to do, which is to know God and to love God, and to delight in God for all eternity. And the question is, if that's going on between all three members of the Trinity for all eternity, how do you break into that? How do you get some of that? Well, Jesus just said, to whomever the Son desires to reveal, only through the Son, only through the Son do you get into the Trinity get into by by which I mean experience those relationships, experience that level of love of knowing God, but piece it together with what we saw in verses 25 through 26. How do you see the Son to begin with? You got to come to the Son to know the Father, but how do you know who the Son is to begin with? Only through the Father, right? The only way that you get to know God is if God moves first. If God acts first, You can't break into God. You can't build a ladder high enough to get to God. You can't do enough things to get to God. That's not how you get his favor. God has to move first. The Father reveals the Son, and then you come to the Son to see the Father and to be brought into that level of that that level of knowing now you're like well wait a minute we don't know the father like we the son knows the father well that's absolutely true but think about where the way things are going the son brings us an initial knowledge of god of the father and then the glory of eternity the glory of heaven is not the people who are going to be there except for three people who are going to be there the father the son and the spirit Our greatest joy in heaven will not be rewards, whatever God gives. It will not be even other people that we know in this life. It will be delighting in and knowing and loving and experiencing intimacy, joy, glory of being brought into the eternity, of continually knowing. There is infinite depth to who God is. So as a finite creature, even in heaven, I will be finite. I will never come to the end of knowing who God is, of knowing him relationally. And that's what Jesus is saying. That's the goal of Christianity, is knowing the Trinity. That's what he came to do. And if you want to break into that, if you want to know the Father, you got to come to the Son. you got to come to the Son. So you need to understand that the greatest joy that can be had is knowing the Father, the Son, and the Spirit as they know each other, and also understand that the only way to knowing the Trinity is by the revelatory work of the Trinity. You might notice the Spirit's not here, but if we were to tie together the rest of the revelation of Scripture, we would understand that the Father reveals the Son. How does He do that? Through regeneration by the Spirit and bringing someone to new birth and to surrender, and the Spirit's active in that, such that that person comes to the Son and believes the gospel, and then the Son sends the Spirit indwelling the individual. All three persons are involved in every aspect of salvation according to their rules. It is amazing. It is an amazing God that we serve. He is a triune God, and we want to know the persons for all eternity. So we've seen this. You need to praise the Father who only reveals the Son to infants. You need to understand that only the Son can reveal the Father, and then you need to take up the yoke of the gentle and lowly Son for rest. You need to take up the gentle the yoke of the gentle and lowly son for rest. Look at verse 28. 
So given all that what Jesus has just said, this is amazing. He's saying, look, it's only because of the Father revealing the Son, and you can, on, you can only know the Father if you come to me. So what does he say? Verse 28, come to me. Here's the reality of affairs. You can't come unless the Father makes it happen. So come. Come. Come to me. Don't come. Notice what this doesn't say. It doesn't say come to a bunch of doctrinal facts that you ascend to mentally and then you're good to go. It doesn't say that. It says what? Come to me, the person of the Son. Friends, coming, becoming a Christian, surrendering, repenting, and trusting yourself to Christ is not a sense. You can know all the right facts. The demons know all the right facts, and they are not saved. Why not? Because they're not submitted to Christ. When you come, you come to Christ. When you're sharing the gospel with someone, I don't know how you were saved, uh, but, or maybe you're sharing the gospel with someone. The, 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 actually, if you read through the New Testament— the gospel is not presented in Jesus died for you, so trust him. Now, there's truth to that, but actually Jesus died for his people. He died for his people. You don't know whether that other person is, a, uh, is actually one of Christ's people. You don't know that. But how does the New Testament, including Jesus himself right here, present the gospel? He says, come to me. In other words, have dealings, have a transaction with Christ. Christ is the one mediator between God and man, and the only way you come to the Father is by coming and having dealings with Christ. Even today, I'm sharing the gospel with someone, and I'm saying, look, my, my God, my, my, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, he is God and man, he died for the sins of his people, and he rose again, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's in a human body, as a human and God at the, at the right hand of the Father right now, and if you want reconciliation with God, you have to have dealings with the risen Christ. I'm just giving you an introduction. You are the one who has to call on the name of the Lord. You have to have dealings with the risen Christ. And that brings a whole nother level of concreteness to what we mean when we're sharing the gospel. I don't want you to just pray a prayer. I don't want you to just assent to these facts. I want you to have business. I want you to do business with Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of the Father and the only one through whom you will be saved and have access to God. That is what we call people to. We call people like Jesus is, come to me. And then he described all you who are laboring and are burdened. Now, you notice this is plural, or maybe you can't see it in the English as much, but it's plural. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the crowds. He's talking to the crowds who haven't committed themselves yet, but he's also, by extension, talking to the nation of Israel. He's talking to the nation of Israel, and he's saying, come to me. You guys, it's, you guys are in exile. You're, you're laboring, and you're heavy laden under the yoke of harsh taskmasters like Pharaoh in Egypt, like the Babylonian king. You're, you're under Rome now. You're laboring and heavy laden. Why are you in this condition? Well, you're in this condition ultimately. Why is the nation in this condition? Because of their sin, because of forsaking God, forsaking his law, walking in their own way. That's why they're laboring and heavy laden. And what's the promise? If you come to me, and I will give you rest. Now, the biblical concept of rest is not just, I took a nap, or I have some sense of internal peace. It's so much more than that. The initial instance of human rest was on day seven. Day seven, where God created man to have fellowship with him, and God set aside a day to have that time of rest. And the idea of rest is not, it's, it's man dwelling with God in perfect peace and harmony in a physical body with the abundance of fresh and good creation. We are beings that are both an internal person and an external person we can't divorce those. Yes, at death, our soul is separated from our body for a time, but we're not designed to be that way. The way that God has designed it is that we would dwell in his presence in a physical body, in a renewed and an edenic rest, 
for all eternity. And that's where the Bible is going. Even after the fall, when, when man and woman are exiled from the garden, everything in the scriptures is driving back to the reestablishment of that Edenic rest, of man dwelling with God in a body, in a new heavens and a new earth, enjoying God. That's the kind of rest that is being talked about. And even throughout Israel's history, even in terms of the promised land, it was described of, when I bring you up out of Egypt, I'm going to bring you to rest. I'm going to plant you in a land, and you're going to worship me and enjoy me with my temple being there. I'm going to give you rest from your enemies, and I'm going to give you abundance. And then that, the, the vision is that rest is going to extend to the rest of the world, because that is where God is going in history. That's the kind of rest that Jesus is talking about. Come to me, I'm the Messiah, I'm the King. All you who are under exile, you're laboring, you're heavy laden because of your sin, and I will give you that kind of rest. And then he just develops it. He develops that same thought more in verses 29. So he said, come to me, but what does it mean to come to Jesus? Well, Jesus explains that, verse 29. Take my yoke upon you. Now, the biblical motif of a yoke, a yoke, you know what a yoke is. You, there, there's actually a couple different kinds. I, I didn't even think about this until this last week when I was studying it. There's an animal yoke where you, you know, kind of have the thing under the neck and you put the bar over the top. But actually there's human yokes too. Did you know that? There's this thing that you put across your shoulders and you got like two buckets on the side of it and that's a human yoke. Either way, uh, it's a yoke, it's a burden. But in the, in the scriptures, there's two ways, there's two primary ways that the yoke motif is used. One way is with reference to God. Uh, turn to Jeremiah, if you would, Jeremiah 5. Now, this is late in Israel's history. This is right before, Jeremiah's written right before they go into exile. So they are disobedient. And if we look at Jeremiah 5.5, 5, and Jeremiah is warning them. He's saying, you guys are disobedient. Come back, come back. You're this is, this is going to happen. You're going to be judged. Jeremiah 5 through 6 are really tied together, and we're going to look at a verse in um, Jeremiah 6 in a minute. But first, look at Jeremiah 5, 5, 4 through 5. Jeremiah speaking says, Then I said, These are only the poor. They have no sense, for they do not know the way of Yahweh, the justice of their God. What's he talking about? He's saying the, the poor people, the regular Joes of the land, they don't know God's law, and they're not obeying God's law. That's why they're not obeying. They're just the regular average folk. And what's he talking about? The way of Yahweh, the justice of their God. He's talking about the law. He's talking about the commands of God. They're disobeying, and God promised in Deuteronomy, you disobey, I'm going to judge you. I'm going to curse you until you come back. The goal was always restoration. And yet in Jeremiah's day, he's preaching that, and people aren't responding. Sound familiar? But look at verse 5. I will go to the great and will speak to them, for they know the way of Yahweh, the justice of their God. But notice this language. But they all alike had broken the yoke. They had burst the bonds. What's the yoke? The yoke is a reference to God's law. The yoke is a reference to, if you're going to follow God, that means a certain way of life. That's a certain way of life. And for Israel, that meant the law, the Torah, and the Israelite covenant. But the reality is, and, and, and God says this in the uh, Leviticus, he says it in Deuteronomy, if you don't submit to my yoke, and you go after other gods and other nations, then I'm going to put another yoke on you. I'm going to put the yoke of those other gods that you went after and the other nations, and it's going to be a heavy yoke. And so then rescue gets talked about in terms of, I'm going to break that yoke, and I'm going to bring you back to the land. The idea is that you're always going to serve. You're always going to have a yoke. You're always going to be that way. It's just a matter of who are you serving. It's just a matter of who are you serving. And so what Jesus is saying here in verse 29, he says, take my yoke. Now notice he doesn't say God's yoke, he says my yoke, because again, he's affirming his deity in an indirect way. Take my yoke upon you. What is he referencing? Well, what is Jesus' law? Where did we see Jesus give a law? Matthew 5 through 7, right? He interpreted the law. 
He sat like Moses on the mountain giving a law. And he's saying, that's what it means to follow me. That's what it means to follow me. This is what kingdom righteousness looks like. If you're going to come to me, you're going to come to me, you're going to repent and trust yourself. It also implies that you're going to take my yoke, my teaching upon you. That's why he says, and learn from me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. What's he mean? The, the idea of a disciple is that of a learner. Someone who's going to learn Christ, but also learn his commands and follow and obey his law. That is the idea. Notice the reason he gives. Why should you take up my yoke upon you and learn from me? Because I am gentle and lowly in heart. If you think about Israel and all its domination, whether it's under Pharaoh or under the Babylonians or under Rome, they had harsh taskmasters. It was part of their discipline for disobeying God. But what Jesus is saying is, yeah, there's a yoke, but my yoke I'm, I'm gentle, and I'm lowly in heart. Uh, you remember in Numbers 12, 3, Moses was described as the most meek or gentle man who ever lived? Well, until Jesus. And that law was good. Obviously, Moses, uh, God was giving the law through Moses, but here's even more. The law of Christ is better because he is the most gentle and lowly in heart. God's, Christ's character is good. It is good. And again, he reiterates that promise. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And what's the promise? And you will find rest for your souls. The idea of soul, both in the New Testament and the Old Testament, it's holistic. It's not just your inner part. It is that, but it's also your outer part, because we're holistic beings. We are inner and outer man put together. And so the idea here, again, of you will find rest for your souls, you could almost translate it like this, you will find rest for your beings, right? The whole of who you are, externally, internally, and notice the promise of that rest. It's not just when you turn to Christ, you have an inner sense of peace. That's true. God gives that, but that, that's not all of it. The, all of it is dwelling on God's earth, the new heavens and the new earth, enjoying God in a physical body for all eternity. That's the future rest he's talking about here. And Jesus supports the call one more time. Verse 30, for my yoke is good. A lot of translations say easy. The word doesn't mean easy. The, means, the word means good, kind. My yoke is good. There's a yoke, there's a burden I mean, you look at Matthew 5 through 7, it's like, this is rigorous. This is hard. Christianity is hard. If it's not hard, maybe you don't actually know what Christianity means. Christianity is hard, but Christ's yoke is good, and his burden is light, light by comparison. If you think about the, the, the harshness of Israel's overlords, or just in general, all of humankind is in exile because of their sin, because they wanted to be lords, captains of their own destiny, kings and queens in their own right, independent of God. And where does it lead you? Oh, it feels good for a while, but then it leads you to a heavy, heavy, heavy yoke. Because you're not designed to live that way. You're not designed to live independent of who God is. You're designed to submit to him and to find your greatest joy and satisfaction in knowing him and submitting to his rule. Draw some implications from this. Coming to Jesus implies discipleship. This is Jesus, this is Jesus' gospel call, Jesus' summons. And what does he say? Come to me, repent, and entrust yourself to Christ. All of that is embedded within that idea. But what also, what also is he saying? Take up my yoke not just a one-and-done thing. It's a life. It's a life of discipleship. Coming to Jesus implies discipleship. There's no having Jesus as Savior without having him as Lord and Master also. Coming to Jesus means a life of repentance and faith in following Jesus' commands. And the call is open to everyone. Jesus is 
proclaiming this call indiscriminately. This is our warrant for proclaiming the gospel indiscriminately. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. He's the one mediator between God and man, but it's take up his yoke and follow him like I am following him because he's good. Take up Jesus' yoke and keep bearing it throughout life. Come to him because he reveals the Father our greatest joy. We keep saying this, and I'm going to keep saying it, the gospel is not a one-and-done thing. It's not like, oh, yeah, I believe the gospel, and that's back there somewhere. I'm good. No, it's a whole life thing. Keep learning Jesus. Keep learning who he is. Keep taking up his burden. Keep obeying his law. But if you will not, if you will not take up Jesus' burden, don't think you're free. Maybe you think that, right? Well, I don't want that burden. I'm going to be free. I'm going to do what I want. You're not free. You are actually bearing a heavier yoke because you are not living as God designed you. Your gods, especially yourself, will not satisfy you and will lead you to ruin now and for eternity. So take up Jesus' yoke. Do it today. Yes, it's hard, but he's good, and he will lead us to true rest. Yes, Jesus gives a measure of rest and peace now, but you look at the New Testament, you look at what he said in chapter 10, uh, yeah, you can, you can expect this side of heaven, this side of the new heavens and the new earth, which is the rest he's promising. It's hard. But the future on the new heavens and the new earth, in a body, enjoying the Son, the Father, and the Spirit, enjoying the kingdom, Waits. And that gives hope. When there's days where the yoke feels just really heavy, and it's like, I can't do it. This is so hard. I can't kill my sin. It's so hard. And what do you do to keep going? Jesus will give rest. In measure now and in fullness in, the eter- in eternity, that keeps us going. Jesus' promise of rest. So come to the Son who reveals the Father who reveals the Son, to find rest. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. I thank you that you are in heaven right now at the right hand of God. We we live before you. You know us. You're there. You're the one mediator. You are the Lord of the church. You are building your church as you will. You are the King. Lord, I pray that we're called to be faithful to proclaim the word. That's the means you use, and yet we know it's ultimately you, Father, who reveals the Son. It's the only way any of us comes to you. So I pray that you would work, that you would keep working in those who have already entrusted themselves to you, that we would keep walking in faithfulness and perseverance to to reach the rest at the end, to hear, well done, and good and faithful servant. But we pray for those who are still bearing the yoke of their own making, of their own choice, their own lordship, ruling their own life. Lord, please release them from such a heavy yoke and bring them under your yoke, your teaching, your law, because, Jesus, you are gentle and lowly in heart. We love you. We praise you. We praise you for bringing us into the hope of knowing the triune God for all eternity, for that is our greatest joy. Help us, O Lord God. We love you. Thank you. Thank you for this scripture, that it is there, and that it's your call, and it's your call today. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.